What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. Today, I have the amazing pleasure of talking to someone that I am quite sure most of you will be familiar with. Her name is Katie Couric, and she is an award-winning journalist, producer, New York Times bestselling author, cancer advocate, podcast host, and documentary filmmaker. Welcome, Katie. An all-around great gal. Hi, Aaron. An all-around great gal. (laughs) Um, And thank you for hosting us here. We are uh, downstairs at your uh, residence here in New York near the park, and it's a beautiful day outside. Yeah, it's actually cooled down considerably. So I've been inside working on my book most of the morning. So I'm anxious to take a walk or get outside. And I'm actually heading to my office after this. Oh, great. Well, it is nice. I was here two weeks ago and it was very sweaty. So you're right. <laughs> it's it's much nicer. Where do you live? I live in San Francisco. Oh, well, welcome to New York. Thank you. Although I'm a Boston-based guy originally and uh, moved out there four years ago. And we come to we have a, our biggest office here in New York. So I sat next to the new mayor of San Francisco at a dinner the other night and was really impressed by her. Yeah, I was in an event uh, probably a month or two ago in London Breed, who you're speaking of. Um, yes, I love her name. Brilliant too. woman. Yeah, no, I, I really think that she's uh, she's a hard charger and hopefully up to doing good things. For yeah, San well, I know she's really uh, trying to tackle the homeless population in San Francisco, which I understand is a huge problem. Huge problem in a lot of cities, but particularly San Francisco. And it seems like she has been able to make some positive inroads in that area. Yeah, she at least has good ideas on how to approach it. Yeah. I think that's something we've been lacking a little bit. Uh, so we're here doing a podcast, and we'll talk a little more about your podcast uh, as we get into the show. But I do want to start off with um, the fact that you were the co-anchor of the Today Show for 15 years, and that was... I remember growing up and watching that religiously. Thank uh, you for making me feel ancient. Well, you know, I was like in my 20s in college, so I was <laughs> watching kidding. your, you know. Your... Everyone says that to me now. I grew up watching you, and I'm always like, thanks. But when, what really bugs me is when I know they're my same age, and they say they grew up watching me, and I'm like, mm. You can just say, I remember watching you, you know, as I was. I don't think so, but anyway. Um, and then you were actually uh, one of the first women news anchors for nightly newscasts with CBS. The first solo. The so first solo. other other people like Barbara Walters and Connie Chung had done it with male co-anchors, but I was the first woman to do it all by myself. That's right. Thank you for clarifying because <laughs> that is an important <laughs> distinction. Um, but uh, about four years ago, you created a company, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about the reboot that you did as well. You created Katie Couric Media. Let's talk about how that's evolved since its inception and also talk a little bit about what that is because I sure. think some of your titles with documentary film and others fit underneath that bucket. Right. Well, you know, I've done a lot of different jobs in both local television, network television, and then I worked in the digital space working at Yahoo. I was in syndicated television before that. So I've really had a really interesting and varied career. And I wanted to start producing some documentaries and really having a team that would be devoted to looking for interesting projects that I could be involved in. And so it was a few years ago uh, we started Katie Couric Media because I was doing a documentary. I had already executive produced a documentary on childhood obesity called Fed Up and then on gun violence called Under the Gun. 
And I was interested in doing a documentary about sort of the changing paradigm of gender and gender identity and helping people understand something that it was a learning process for me about sort of this uh, increasing, uh, I guess, awareness and um, exposure of trans people in this country and people who are non-binary, different pronouns like they, them, theirs. My daughter came back from her first year of college and said, you know, we introduce ourselves and then we give our pronouns um, in class. And I thought, wow, this is a lot different than when I went to college. And I wanted to help people understand and navigate this these changing, uh, really, gender identities and changing terms. And so I started my production company then. And then I also collaborated with National Geographic and did a six-hour documentary series called America Inside Out. But then last June, a year ago, I decided to really staff up more because we are now doing a lot that, as you know, the media landscape has changed so dramatically. And we are now teaming up with purpose-driven brands and companies that have values that align with mine and the team I've assembled to do different projects, whether it's uh, live conferences, it might be digital series, it might be documentaries. Um, And so we started Katie Kirk Media in its current incarnation uh, just over a year ago. And it's been really interesting. I think we've seen this convergence of brands and companies that that are expected to take positions on these thorny social issues. Their employees really want it. According to an Edelman Trust Barometer, 76% of employees want their CEOs to take a stand on big issues. And they're not wanting to wait for the government uh, to do anything about it. So as this decline in faith in institutions has happened, believe it or not, a lot of uh, responsibility has been placed on the shoulders of big companies. And so I thought, I like to tell stories. I'm interested in exploring topics that are getting short shrift, I think, on on sort of traditional broadcast networks and even cable networks. And so I started to explore that, and the response has been phenomenal. And so I'm really excited to team up with, with companies who who really want to stand for something and often want to stand for some of the things I want to stand for. Well, it's nice when you can have that marriage, and I think one of them is Procter & Gamble you're working with now. I will say, related to this, uh, I've signed up a few months ago for your Wake Up with Katie Couric yeah. newsletter, which I encourage everyone to do. Wake Up Call. Wake Up Call. <laughs> it's uh, a perfect marriage of you cover news topics, you cover some of the things that are your interests, and then also some fun topics. Yeah. Uh, I will mention it was nice, you mentioned Fed Up, that the uh, main character... I guess subsequently has lost 148 pounds and it's is now amazing. in medical school, which it is, is kind of crazy. It is amazing, and the photos of him are not to be believed. It's Brady, and the way he has turned his life around and gotten healthy, and now studying to be a doctor. He's from this small town. I mean, I'm so proud of him. And he reached out to me on Instagram and said, hi. And I said, Brady, my God, you look amazing. And I'm so excited you're going to college because he had a bit of a setback. At the end of the movie, we mentioned that he had gained his weight back. But clearly, he sort of changed his life. And he's now going to become a doctor. So, you know, 
I like to do all kinds of stories. And I think one of the reasons I gravitated to a morning newsletter is that you get there are a million of them from these entities, but none from a very few actually from a real human being. And since I've been in the business and established myself as someone who at least some people like and trust and feel comfortable with, I thought I'll be delivering the things I care about and help them be really a filter for this tsunami of information that we're drowning in almost every single day. So it's been fun and we continue to iterate it and improve it. But, um, you know, that's just one aspect of the business. And then another is these collaborations with important brands like Procter & Gamble, which came to be in a very organic way. I met Mark Pritchard at a Glamour Women of the Year event, gosh, 20 years ago, and was so impressed by him. And they've been on the forefront. It's so interesting. P&G in Cincinnati, Ohio, has been on the forefront or at the forefront of these important issues, exploring things like race with a, a, an incredible short film they did called The Talk, uh, really addressing implicit bias in a short film called The Look. They talk about gender equality. You know, even an ad like Always Like a Girl, to flip that on its head and show little girls running fast and furiously, and, you know, uh, you know helped actually change some hearts and minds about what girls were capable of doing. So they are adding to the conversation and, and prompting conversations in such an impressive way. And now kind of everybody's doing that. And I think it's it's really exciting. So I've been very thrilled to collaborate with them. And Mark Pritchard and I have become good friends. And I just, I respect that company so much. Um, you know, they talked about toxic masculinity. Some people thought it was a bit heavy handed, but they listened to the criticism and they've sort of adjusted their messaging. And, you know, it's 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 really actually very exciting to see. And they're producing stuff that, quite frankly, I'm just not seeing anyplace else. And I think the same can be said for a lot of other companies as well, like Merck. Yeah. And and I think, you know, that is the beauty of having someone like you that has the experience that you do and the name brand recognition but also that trust is being able to, to bring that. And I know we are going to talk about stand up to cancer, but since you brought it up, um, you were involved recently with a campaign called with love me. Right. And anyone that hasn't seen it, which I'd be surprised of it's, it's sort of raising the hair on the back of my neck right now because I recently, um, lost my mother-in-law and I know you've lost your first husband and your sister. We all have, but I felt like it was different in a way and it, it was um, it really stood out to me. I'd love to get your take on, you know, what attracted you to it as someone that's had to be that caregiver and why do you think it really sort of landed so well with the audience? Well, I think going through a cancer diagnosis, whether it's yourself or someone you love and care about deeply is, I mean, it's such a traumatic experience. It's also a very lonely and isolating experience. It's confusing. It's, it's just terrible. And I think that to be able to talk honestly about your experiences and to share what you've learned from having to go through that trauma and what you would have done differently Uh, I think it's so useful, it's so heartfelt, and it's so deeply, profoundly personal. And I think because of that, and because so many people find themselves in this position, not simply for cancer, but for a whole host of caregiving 
duties. And I think there's just not enough out there supporting caregivers. And so many people, of course, are part of a sandwich generation where they're taking care of their parents and their children. And I think people are just looking looking for help. And, you know, I've always been really focused on the research and awareness aspect of cancer, uh, colon cancer awareness with my colonoscopy, supporting science and research with Stand Up to Cancer and collaboration instead of competition, that I've always felt, gosh, what can I do to help people who are dealing with it, you know, in a more direct way. I've done some things for uh, cancer care, but um, I haven't done that much patient-oriented things. And so this was an opportunity for me to, to reach out and support not only the caregiving community, but but the, you know, surviving, the community of survivors and people who are actually going through it because you do feel very, very, I don't know, separated from the land of the living when you're in this constant 24-7 anxiety-producing experience of cancer. I felt like I had a vice around my heart the whole time when I woke up, when I went to bed, and it just, it's so paralyzing. So I think some of the messages were incredibly helpful in that, in that series. And that's why I was really proud to support it and to help amplify it. Well, and you did an amazing job with that. Um, speaking of, you mentioned Stand Up to Cancer. I was listening to one of the interviews you did with Matthew McConaughey, and he was talking about his involvement. It's also been nice to see recently Paul Rudd doing these MasterCard right, Stand Up right. to Cancer commercials. But one of the things you mentioned to him that I thought was interesting, and this is to that loneliness and knowing what the right thing is to do. And you did say that you had a little bit of guilt around you know, your husband, your first husband, Jay, and that he was diagnosed with stage four. Um, so there wasn't, there weren't a lot of options at that point, but you walked that fine line between you wanted to know everything you could, you wanted to know every option, but sometimes maybe shielding him from some of those because you didn't want him to worry and you probably didn't want him to, to know the extent of that. So maybe we rewind a little bit and let's talk about why you started stand up to cancer and then maybe we can get into, you know, sort of how it's helped you process some of that and how you're seeing it help other people. Sure. I mean, I think, uh, when it comes to Jay's situation, uh, yes, I have a lot of guilt and a lot of, you know, I've second guessed myself a lot. I'm writing a book about my life right now. And I actually, met up with Jay's doctors for a glass of wine to talk to them about it. And, you know, I just, I think no matter how you handle it, you wonder if you're doing, doing it right and doing everything you can. And I did those things you described. I, I sort of shielded Jay and you kind of take your cues from the person you love. And he didn't seem as, as brilliant and, um, I mean, as curious as he was, he didn't seem to want to really know. And I think you don't know how you would react and what kind of patient you would be until you're actually faced with that. And maybe he was protecting me, too, at the same time. So I think, um, you know, if I, if I did a With Love Me, uh, I would talk about, I wish we had talked about it. <laughs> you know, a talk to, had a more honest conversation and it was, 
I think to talk about death and the possibility of death, I think I was so afraid that he would feel that I had given up hope and that it would take hope away from him. And so... Well, it's like raising kids. There's no rule book, right? It's different yeah. for everybody. And I, I'm going to guess that that's part of why you did stand up to cancer because you don't want others to be out there sort of fumbling around trying to figure out what the right solution is. And if they well, do that, have yeah. the best research, then certainly that can help you know get them into better places faster. Well, I think that what I was just talking about with Jay was more sort of the emotional, emotional uh, treatment of his disease. And I think... One of the things that I discovered uh, is that there wasn't much collaboration going on in the field of cancer research. There were a lot of silos, institutions, medical schools, pharmaceutical companies were all kind of doing their own thing and not necessarily working with other like-minded people really committed to coming up with better treatments for various cancers. So in addition to a lack of collaboration, I also found that I had to go, Jay and I had to go from place to place. We had to go to an oncological ophthalmologist. Uh, You know, when he got a tumor behind his eye, we had to go to a different place for radiation and a different place for chemo. And it was so stressful, you know. And so we started the Jay Monahan Center at New York Presbyterian to have a comprehensive place where people could go and get genetic counseling and nutrition and really be treated as the whole person and the whole family, not just the disease, and to be there to provide the support they needed. And then with Stand Up to Cancer, I realized I was focused so much on colon cancer, and there were so many other cancers that needed funding and needed awareness and needed support. So I got together with eight other women, Sherry Lansing, Laura Ziskin, a bunch of other really exceptional women, and Lisa Paulson, who was head of EIF, the Entertainment Industry Foundation. And we said, you know, we see these big telethons for tsunami victims and for the victims of 9-11 and for earthquake victims. They're so important and so needed. But so many people also die of cancer. It just isn't one big event. It's an everyday, every minute situation. And I and we said we need to we need to declare this a national emergency too in a way. And so we started doing these every other year fundraisers where all the networks uh, participated and now it's not only networks it's digital sites and YouTube and every place under the sun and then in addition to that raising money in a host of other ways to support dream teams of scientists and their mandate is to collaborate instead of compete so you have someone from the University of Arizona working with someone at Johns Hopkins working with someone at MD Anderson working with someone at Merck or Bristol Myers Squibb and they're all kind of joining forces because I always say if two heads are better than one, 10 heads are better than two. And these are impressive brains. <laughs> you know, these are really brilliant scientists. And, you know, the federal government only pays for, only funds one in every 10 promising research grant proposals. So that's a lot of really exciting ideas left on the cutting room floor. And they're my heroes and heroines these scientists and they deserve our support. So 
starting Stand Up to Cancer with these other dynamic women is has been really a highlight for me and um, one of my proudest accomplishments for sure. Well, and it's amazing. <clears throat> We've um, raised over $600 million. I, I was just going to mention that, you know, you're closing in on a billion and that's a lot. And I know just how important that is. And I think we have six, uh, we've contributed to the development of six FDA approved drugs. So I do want to go back a little bit to your early days and network news. And I think we've covered a little bit of this, but I'm guessing there's probably a little bit of nostalgia for the network news and then probably a lot of relief that you were able to build this great sort of platform and resume and now you can focus on some of the things that you care about. But let's talk about that. You know, do you miss those days where you got to interview every amazing person in the world, you get to cover breaking news and, you know, you did it sort of in this crucible, right, where everyone in the world was looking at you yeah. as you did it. Yeah, well, it's so different now because it's so fragmented. I say, does anyone even watch the news I anymore? think they, they do. Um, the audience is aging and declining, but it's still, I think, a really important venue, and, and I really admire and respect the journalists who, who are working in that venue. Um, yes, I mean, I sort of, I feel very lucky. I was at doing it in the heyday of especially morning news, because I think there were very few options back then. iPhones didn't really exist. I started in 1991, went through 2006, and I think the iPhone really came out in, what, 2007? 2007, yeah. And so, um, you know, I think people who wanted to know what was going on in the world could turn on their radio, grab their paper on the front steps, believe it or not, or even look online in a limited way, or turn on the TV and watch morning television. So it felt like I, I was part of the epicenter of the news, of, the, of, of people's news di diets. Um, and so um, it was so much fun and I loved it. And I'm so grateful I had that opportunity and was able to do things like my on-air colonoscopy or be a part of the 9-11 coverage, which was so important to the nation, I think. Um, and I do miss the camaraderie. I miss kind of being part of a team, all working together to put something on the air. And live television, of course, has its own level of excitement. And, and you know, I'm a, an adrenaline junkie, so that was really fun. But, you know, I feel like I did the Today Show for 15 years and I was ready to do something else. That's a long time. And I was excited to try my hand at the CBS Evening News at a time when it was already starting to decline year over year. And, um, and that was a really interesting experience for me because CBS was such a different culture than NBC. But um, I feel grateful for that opportunity. So I think I miss the people and sort of the sense of teamwork and everybody working together. But you know, <laughs> you see the, the pass through rose colored glasses sometimes. There's a lot of uh, politics and infighting and, and that, that is its own kind of uh, thing you have to deal with. So I, I really enjoyed it while I did. I miss, as I said, the people, but there's also something very exciting about building your own team and being able to do things you really want to do. You know, as glamorous as it seems, like any job, it's, you know, it becomes a bit of a grind and you're doing the almost the same thing every day. Obviously, you get to, to, to do different stories, but after a while, you feel like, uh, didn't I do this segment seven years ago? And 
how many times can you talk about the latest blue jeans, you know, on the market? So I think when I left, I was ready to, to try new things. So I have to ask, and I didn't put this in here, but um, did you ever get a chance to watch the newsroom with Aaron Sorkin? Mm-hmm. And how real did that feel? I kind of hate of- watch the newsroom, to be honest. I love Aaron Sorkin. I think he's brilliant. Uh, it was sort of real. And, uh, you know, the rat-a-tat-tat of his dialogue. It was, it was, it was fine. <laughs> I just wonder, because it was fascinating to me, and you always wonder, how much truth is there behind those things? I, you know, every newsroom is different. Every organization is different. Every kind of process is different. Um, so it, 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 I think it had some, some reality to it, but a lot of it was, I think it was really more focused on, on cable news a little bit more. Yeah, it definitely was. You know, I think it was supposed to be CNN-ish, right? Ish, or something yeah, everything lines. is ish today. Ish. <laughs> but it was fun to watch. And as I said, I, and I do like Jeff Daniels, although, you know, when I saw To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, I, I think he did a great job, but it's so hard to mess with such a classic and Gregory Peck is just my ideal and oozes integrity. And I just love that movie so, so much. I love the score by Elmer Bernstein and, uh, and it, you know, it, it was just hard to compete with that. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll be a bigger fan with uh, my wife, Melanie, who that's her favorite, you know, book is to kill a mocking. Yeah. I love the movie. So, um, I do want to stay on the news theme, uh, without getting political or too political. You know, we do live in trying times, uh, especially with a president that constantly wants to call everything that's not Fox news, fake news. I think the president has been very effective at, at coming up with these mantras that are quite simplistic, but he repeats over and over again, whether it's, you know, about Jeb Bush or about the news news industry or news that he doesn't like. And unfortunately, it's really destructive and damaging to, to sort of add fuel to the fire of a lack of trust in the media. I think what's happened now to ensure an audience, it's very difficult to do middle of the road reporting and media uh, and coverage. You know, some of my friends watch the BBC uh, if they just want the news or PBS, but increasingly, you know, it's it's difficult. And I think the evening newscasts are very nonpartisan. Um, but you know, of course, the cable the cables have have picked their sides, and and um, I think I always say people are getting often getting affirmation instead of information, and it's really actually kind of an insult to viewers in s- some ways. I think. There are a lot of smart people working in cable, so I don't want to cast aspersions on the whole industry, but I think that they're getting people who, while some very smart commentators, generally commentators who are reinforcing their already held views. And, you know, I can understand that in certain instances, but in others, I think it would be great to hear kind of a, a, a fuller picture and let people make up their own minds. And I guess I'm going to go on a limb and say what you're doing is probably helping to some degree, right? Because you can bring, <clears throat> people know what your brand is, but I think you're trying to bring a variety of news sources there. 
I would say the silver lining has been you've seen an uptick in paywalls and you know companies doing better like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Right. I guess right. Washington, Washington Post. Post. Any other thoughts in terms of how I was listening to a segment on NPR and just saying you know there's no simple or short solution, but as someone that's to to the to the media, yeah, to like helping get to- us back to a place where people do trust the media and we do get away from some of this you know sensationalized. I, you know, I've been watching the loudest voice the the series on Roger on Showtime and I knew Roger when he did political commentary with Bob Squire on the Today Show and uh, and and you know it, it was almost it was an ideological decision according to this I haven't read the smartest the, the loudest voice in the room by Gabe Sherman which the series is based on but I should um, and it was sort of an ideological obviously an ideological consideration, but also it became a commercial consideration. And this civil war or this conflict in America, I think, has served these particular niche news industries well, right? Because you're guaranteed an audience uh, and outrage sells, just like sex sells. And I think that some of it is is commercial. But I also think it's very hard. You know, everyone says, well, if Donald Trump isn't reelected or after he leaves uh, the White House, it will. I don't think it will all settle His down. This doesn't go away, right? There's still that. There's a reason right. why he's been successful. Right. But I do think that he is, has sort of stretched the boundaries of civility and civil discourse in a way that it's become an oxymoron. And and I think it was getting that way, you know, with the, the strong opinions on both sides. But I think, you know, sometimes I wonder what would it be like right now if Mitt Romney were president? Would we be as polarized? And I think the rhetoric and the uh, vitriol has been so ratcheted up, primarily by the president of the United States, that it, it creates a very, very difficult environment for objectivity, quote unquote, air quotes here, because there's really no such thing as pure objectivity. Um, the, you know, who, what, when, where, why, everything is given context and it's, it's, it's affected by your personal experiences and your background and how, you're, how you've been shaped and your values. So um, I just, I don't know what, what's going to happen, but, you know, Journalism is so incredibly important, and I think people can really cherry pick what they think is true and what they think isn't, and what they think is biased and what they think isn't. And yeah, it's it's a it's a very confounding and disturbing time. Well, I think it is. Unfortunately, uh, I was reminded of more civil days in listening to your podcast, which we'll get to in just a second. You did a revisiting of the Sarah Palin interviews. Right. And one of the things that I was so struck by, one, I forgot how much Palin sort of was the predecessor to him in in some ways, Trump. But the thing that I really loved and made me long for this were the days of the John McCain's where he was at a a, um, convention or a speech. Right. And you actually pulled the excerpt out where someone wanted to sort of roast or really take Obama to task. He said, Mm -hmm. nope, don't go there. Like, I might not agree with this guy, but at the end of the day, 
you can't do that. He's a good man. He's a family man. And I think that was, you know, the, the days of the Mitt Romneys or the others that at least were a little more civil and were willing to attack ideas but not people. That felt like that was something that we miss a lot in today's Well, politics. lately people have been saying, you know, there are no more John McCain's in the Republican Party um, who I think stand for decency. Uh, and although, you know, John McCain has been criticized by for, you know, pivoting way to the right to win re-election. Um, but there were certain boundaries, I think, that weren't weren't crossed. And, you know, I actually listened to that again, too. I just looked it up online on YouTube because uh, there was a lot of conversation with the send her back chant that uh, President Trump could have stepped up and said, hey, hey. You know, but I don't think this is this. That is not the way he rolls. No. And unfortunately, even people like Mitch McConnell, who did gently remind him that we attack ideas, not people still aren't sort of having a firm enough backbone, which is unfortunate. But again, we won't make power is a it's it's hard to it's hard to release your tight little grasp on power. And I think everybody's trying to hold on to theirs. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is uh, so true. On a slightly happier note, uh, we mentioned, <laughs> shifting gears. We mentioned as we used the to say on gears, the Today right? Show. Um, <laughs> we mentioned the podcast. So you have a current iteration, which I believe ended last December, called Katie Couric. Right. And how original? Yeah. Well, you know what? People know you know what it is and where to find it. There is a user experience value to keeping things uh, you know simple. Yeah. Um, you did it with your former producer Brian Goldsmith. I right. know that you are launching a new podcast, which you've started to record series for. Yes. And that's going to be on iHeart. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about what this new series is going to sure, look like. Sure, sure. Well, Brian's not going to sadly be doing it with me. He's he's busy doing other things and lives in Los Angeles. But hopefully, if we do some political podcasts, he'll be a guest host. And um, you know, I I'm using it to to tackle big issues. I, I think obviously that's what I'm really interested in. When I did my Nat Geo series, I did. Confederate statues and sort of the whole history of the lost cause narrative and why they're so offensive to African-Americans um, to just to help people understand sort of the provenance of that whole debate. I did something on political correctness on college campuses and beyond. I did Muslims in America and why there's so much prejudice against Muslim Americans. I did white anxiety. I went to the middle of the country and talked to to primarily white working class men about feeling marginalized and alienated and alienated and trying to understand some of their very laudable values. And um, so I did gender inequality anyway. So I'm, I, I love taking these big topics that are kind of infusing the national dialogue in a whole multitude of ways and trying to kind of tease them out. I think unpacking has become so overused, but to try to really kind of explain them and help us understand and give context and historical perspective. So um, I did, I've, I've recorded four of them and one is on ageism and sort of how it's, how insidious it is. And is it the last socially acceptable prejudice, the last ism that nobody 
is really, you know, talking about and getting upset about. So that was fascinating. I did another one that I, it's quite disturbing. And if there are kids in the room, you don't want them to listen to this. Not that kids are probably listening to this, but on, on pornography and the accessibility and ubiquity of, of pornography and how it's so accessible. Kids as young as nine, 10 are starting to see it on phones and on computers. And because so much of it is violent against women, it's actually having an impact on how their attitudes about intimacy and sex are shaped. And that was really interesting and really upsetting. Um, I just did one on vaping, which is a huge problem uh, in schools across the country. And I did the ABCs of CBD because I wanted to understand sort of the science and does it really work and what's going on and what needs to happen and why did the market explode? So those are some of the things that I'm looking at, um, you know, pretty serious topics. I'd like to explore teenage suicide and what is going on there. And, um, you know, things I'm curious about that are big kind of meaty topics that, that, that need to be understood. So no more of the fun ones with the Steve Perry's and the Martha Stewart's of the world. Well, I mean, I think I will do some of those. And at my company, um, I am doing uh, some of those interviews. I just interviewed Billy Porter from Pose, who was nominated for an Emmy. I interviewed Dr. Ruth uh, at Horizon Media, where our offices are located. They're building a studio so I can do some of these interviews with interesting people and, you know, figure out a way to get them, you know, through my own social media channels. I have like 3 million people and then figuring out a way to distribute, distribute them and to target people who are interested in them. You know, this is the whole new world, you know, analytics and metrics and, you know, who would be interested in hearing about Dr. Ruth and her experience with the Holocaust or, you know, who might be interested in, in, learning more about Billy Porter. So um, I'm going to be doing some of those. And I'd like to do even a separate podcast series with just some fun personalities that are really interesting and fun to talk to. But I do think there's a place in the market for, I hope there is anyway, for people who want to understand this incredibly transformative time where so many things are changing. And, and we need to deal with it in some of them in real time instead of in 10 years saying, God, we were really asleep at the switch, which is kind of what's happened with vaping. All these kids are getting addicted to nicotine. You know, these young kids, 15, 16, because of uh, vapes and juuling. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's creating a real problem. Yeah. I mean, and, it, I, and they're it, taking a page out of the big tobacco's handbook. Right. No, as a father of three and having seen kids go through this, it's amazing. And they make it feel like it's so innocent and innocuous. Right. And, and you look at it, it looks like a thumb drive, you know, kind of if a thumb drive married a big lighter and had a ba- baby. <laughs> I do want to be respectful of time. So I want to get to the last two answers. One of the, um, one of the things I'd love to get your take on because you've talked to so many amazing people, but uh, who is the most interesting guest you've ever interviewed? That is the worst question in the world. I left it intentionally wide because there are obviously a hundred ways you can answer that. Well, it, it's just so hard because it's sort of saying, what is the best meal you've ever had? See, I know that. It's a lobster roll at row 34 in Boston. That's an easy one. 
<laughs> really? So for me, I guess I'm too, I like too many kinds of foods and have had too many great culinary experiences. But I know I've interviewed people who, you know, in the middle of tragedies that have been really important, I've done pretty important political interviews like Sarah Palin or George Herbert Walker Bush, when he walked in on me, when I was in it, that sounds like a lot dirtier than it is, when I was doing a, a tour of the White House with his wife, Barbara, the first lady. And, and uh, you know, and I've done fun interviews with Hugh Jackman and, you know, uh, serious interviews and author interviews. And I mean, it's been pretty extraordinary. So, I, I can't pick one. I you just, just can't. answered it exactly the way I wanted you to, which was that walk down memory lane. So yeah. you gave us, you know, five or seven or ten that we could choose from. Yeah, I mean, there have been there have been a lot. I've been really lucky. As I said, I'm writing my book about my life right now, and so I'm going through a lot of these, you know, Manti Teo I interviewed with that insane story. And uh, you know, Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro for Silver Linings Playbook and and Robert De Niro. Bobby, as Tom Brokaw calls him, or Bob. And, uh, you know, he started crying in the middle of it and got very emotional. And, uh, you know, I interviewed uh, Yardley Love's mom, who started One Love after Yardley was murdered at the University of Virginia. So, you know, I feel like I've done so many interesting, important in different ways interviews that that I couldn't, I couldn't pick a favorite because they've all been so meaningful to me. Well, and like I said, that's a perfect answer because I know there's no way you could possibly pick one. Although this is a good segment segue into our last answer because people <laughs> tell me it's like they know all this stuff and then this is the one that trips them up, which is the you're on a proverbial deserted island. <laughs> you could pick one album to take with you. Which album would you pick and why? Which album would you pick and why? Well, I have three or four that I rotate through, but the one that seems to gravitate or I gravitate toward the most is the Beatles White Album, mainly because it's a double album. I love the Beatles and it has such a diversity. Every time I listen to it, I feel like there's a different sort of thing that I that's take away so from That's so interesting because that's one I thought of too uh, when you asked me. Uh, and I thought my answer would, would probably be Abbey Road because that came out when I was in eighth grade, I think, and I listened to it so much, and I know every song by heart, so I really like Abbey Road. And then the other one, I think, gosh, Court and Spark, maybe, by Joni Mitchell, and maybe um, West Side Story, the soundtrack to West Side Story is an incredible soundtrack, and I did a modern dance in ninth grade for the talent show to West Side Story, so that brings back great memories. Um, gosh, those are those are a few that I would say maybe Adele. I don't know. All amazing choices, and and the key here is like the interview one. It's just having you walk through what the rationale is. So I love the, you know, eighth grade you going back to Abbey Road and just that yeah. comfort and the Maxwell ability to Maxwell Silver Hammer uh, and I yes. mean that has so many great songs and something and come together and uh, doesn't it have octopus. Uh, I think that's Yellow Garden. Submarine. Uh, isn't that on Octopus's? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, think it's, I think it's on Abbey Road, but I could be wrong. Um, but there are just so many great songs on that. But actually, I would like to have a mixtape with all my favorites because let's be honest. I mean, no matter how great an album is, after the 75th time, you get a little tired of it. So if I could bring a mixtape, yeah. remember those. Or a Spotify playlist, you know, one of those. <laughs> 
Well, Katie, this has been a true pleasure. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, host of the What to Know podcast, and I've been talking to Katie Couric, who, as you know, as I mentioned, was an award-winning journalist, producer, New York Times bestselling author, cancer advocate, podcast host, and documentary filmmaker. Pie Baker. I make my own clothes. Baker, I'm kidding. Instagram, I'm kidding. <laughs> Instagram, you know, uh, Instagram goddess. freak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, no. Thank you, Aaron, for coming to my apartment here in New York. I hope you have a nice time in our great city. Are you interviewing anybody else exciting for the podcast while you're here? Not while I'm here. I had a couple of other media meetings, but uh, no one else. You were the the solo target this go around. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fun. Likewise. Thank you, Katie. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.